Pray with me. Well, Father in heaven, we rejoice at the hope of our salvation at Christ because he has come as you have promised him. He is our good shepherd. So Lord, as your word, of, uh, as your word is now proclaimed, as it is announced in, it, in its native language, which is announcing of news, while we sit and listen, Lord, I pray that you would bless it and that we would respond as your sheep, the sheep of your pasture, the sheep of the good shepherd who has laid his life down for us. We pray that we would respond and your spirit would make that so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 32. As you do, I want to ask you a couple of questions. And the first one is, do you, long for, do you long for rest and peace? Do you experience that longing for rest for your soul, for peace, for your striving? The next question is, do you long for, do you love righteousness? Do you love righteousness? Do you love goodness and holiness? Do you want it for yourself? Do you long for the moment, for the day that you will be perfectly righteous, only obeying God? Do you love it when you see righteous things happen? When you love, do you love it when people act righteously and do you hate it when they act unrighteously? See, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, one of the things he said in verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. In our passage in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 32, it's, it's not going to come as a surprise to tell you that it, it follows Isaiah chapter 31, which Jordan uh, preached for us last week, talking about the rest, the peace and quiet and rest that the Messiah would bring. And here we talk about in Isaiah chapter 32, how is it that he accomplishes that rest? Dear friends, he accomplishes that rest because he reigns in righteousness. Let's read, for, uh, let's read Isaiah chapter 32 in its entirety, and then we'll break it apart and we'll follow our shepherd leading us through this passage. Isaiah 32, this is the word of God. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness. And princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm. Like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed. And the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know. And the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel be called, said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter terror concerning the, uh, er, error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied and deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things. And on noble things he stands. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech in little more than a year. You will shudder, you complacent women, for the, uh, complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest has not, will not come. 
Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. Entice sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city is deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture for flocks, until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteous abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forests fall down and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Thus far, God's word. Our first point, which we will find in the first four verses, is this. The righteous son of David will rule over eyes, ears, mouth, and heart. Get that from head and shoulders, knees and toes, eyes, ears, mouth, and heart. Actually, it will be nose as well, but we'll get there in a minute. And we get this from the first four verses, which we just read, but we'll read them again just to get it fresh. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. First, we see a king will reign in righteousness. The answer to that question is, how is it that there will be rest? Why is it that there's not rest, and yet there will be rest in the future? Why is it that there's going to be rest and peace and quiet? And the answer here we are given is because of the reign of a king. And because his reign will be one of righteousness. Now, you can't aim directly for peace or rest or quiet. You can't aim directly at those things. You can't accomplish rest, peace, and quiet just by pursuing those things in and of themselves. You can't do that. In order to get those things, they have to to be attained by pursuing something else. And we get that something else here by pursuing righteousness. Righteousness is how those things are accomplished. You can't pursue joy. you You can't pursue rest or quiet or peace. It is righteousness that needs to be pursued. And because of that, you get those things. But it's not just any kind of righteousness. It's an authoritative righteousness. We, of course, in the rest, we hate authority. Freedom is our call. But we are fools to think that we can have righteousness and peace and quiet without strong, direct, powerful authority. An authority that's insisted on. One that is governed And not only that, but it is protected where there is a king. So Isaiah is speaking of a king, a king of the line of David who will reign, not just suggest righteousness, but who will insist on it. He will ensure it will happen and he will require righteousness. Now, 
in true to form, Isaiah provides this ultimate prophecy of a king reigning in righteousness. He does it sort of in, um, in installments. And first we see a, a short-term fulfillment of this prophecy that will justify faith in the long-term fulfillment. He's going to give a short-term fulfillment, a short-term prophecy of this that's going to justify anybody who has faith that the long-term ultimate fulfillment is going to come. And that first full, uh, that short-term fulfillment is going to be Hezekiah. Hezekiah, son of David, or I guess great-great-great-grandson of, of David. This is a king in the line of David who's going to reign righteously. We see in 2 Chronicles 29.2, speaking of him, and he did what was right. In the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah cleanses the temple. He restores temple worship. Because of him, the Passover is now celebrated. It hasn't been uh, for, for years. He reigns righteously. In chapter 31 of 2 Chronicles, uh, we read in chapter, in, in chapter 31, verse 20 and 21, Thus Hezekiah did throughout uh, all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God. And every good work that he undertook in the service of the house of God and in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and he prospered. And then you have Sennacherib invades this, 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 this incredible danger, presses in on the people of God. And Hezekiah, the son of David, the little M Messiah, what does he do? He prays to God. He turns to God for deliverance. In chapter 32, verse 20, then Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land, and when he came into the house of his God, some of his own sons struck him down there with the sword. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria and from the hand of all his enemies and he protected he provided for them on every side and many brought gifts to the Lord to Jerusalem and precious things to Hezekiah king of Judah so that he was exalted in the sight of all nations from that time forward so the righteous David Messiah little m would not only be righteous but he would also require it of all of the people did you see that not only him it says each Prince, princes will rule in justice. In verse 2 of chapter 32, it says, each will be like a hiding place. And really, the, the, the Hebrew there is saying, to a man, to a man, everyone. He requires it. Not just him. He's not the only one who's righteous. He's requiring it of other people. And this is why it's so good. He's not just there, the alone righteous one. He's, he's ruling in righteousness. And what Hezekiah would be the foreshadow of, he would show that he's going to need his descendant Jesus to fulfill several hundred years later. Jesus reigns. Jesus is Lord is the cry of the church. Jesus is Lord. He reigns. And what does he do when he reigns? He administers righteousness by his reign. Not only is Christ righteous, but his kingdom is also righteous. It is the character of his kingdom, righteousness. It's something that all his people enjoy. Because the righteousness of God is not only right, it's good. 
Righteousness is not only right, it's good, is what is enjoyed by his people. Did you notice that in verse 2? It's like a hiding place from the wind. I don't know if you've ever experienced incredible gusts of wind and it maybe threatens to topple over your house or maybe you're camping or your tent or something and you seek shelter and, and the wind is blocked by some immovable object. Oh, you can be at rest there. I was worried about my life for a moment, but look, it's, it's good now. Or shelter in a storm. Or streams of water in a dry place. You imagine starving or thirsting to death, despairing of life, and then you get a stream of water. Oh, I'm not worried about being alive anymore. Or how about this shade of a great rock in a weary land? Have you ever done any um, physical labor where you're working outside in the heat of the sun? I remember uh, doing that many years ago. I used to actually have a real job. And I would work outside in the heat of the sun, and man, oh man, you just feel the sun baking on you. And I remember even just, you can see, I, I'm you know, maybe mowing a lawn or digging something. You're like, oh, I see that soon I'm going to be beside that fence. And that fence is going to, even a fence is going to provide me a little bit of shelter, a little shade, and you just treasure that. And the Lord is saying, this is how the Lord Jesus, or even as a foreshadow, Hezekiah would rule. Righteousness is not just right, it's good, it's enjoyable. It's enjoyed by the people of God longing for righteousness. Now, I think we're fools to say that righteousness is the cost we pay. If we're, if we're setting up a pro and con list for becoming the people of the Messiah, for repenting of our sin and turning to Christ. Sometimes you might think we're setting up a pro list and a con list, right? And the pro list, I'm forgiven, no hell. Con list, uh, righteousness. We're fools for thinking that. You're a fool for thinking that righteousness is on the con list. One of the, the prices you paid, one of the bad elements, well, I guess I have to obey. No, no, no. The Lord describes righteousness as one of those things that's in the pro list, the good things. It is good, as a, it is sweet, that's particularly true if you've experienced injustice from other people or if you've experienced the results, the consequences of your own unrighteousness. But we see that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, his reign is not only external as was Hezekiah's, it's in internal. See, Hezekiah could rule with the sword and he could rule as a judge to punish those who did evil and he could reward those who did righteously as he was required to do and as he did. But what he could not do is he could not reign internally over the hearts of his people. We see this, the eyes and ears and hearts of his people. We see this in these next few verses. Now, why do we need the Lord Jesus to reign in a way that Hezekiah was unable to do that? Because the Lord Jesus could do what Hezekiah could not do. He could reign over our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our mouths, and even our nose. And we'll get there in a second. In Isaiah chapter 6, on Isaiah's call, you'll remember that Isaiah was called to prophesy and to speak to a people who would not hear and who would not see, whose hearts would, are hard. And so they don't just need the word of God. What else do they need? They need the spirit of God to give them new eyes, new ears, new hearts, and even new mouths. Right, Isaiah? He's calling Isaiah 6 a people of unclean lips. But we also need 
Uh, we, we also need new noses. I'm going to just use that analogy, eyes, ears, mouth, and nose. And that's where that hunger and thirst for righteousness comes in that we read for, for, about in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. We need the Lord to give us a taste for righteousness. Because what is most true of us, as we have all fallen in Adam, is that we have deaf ears to hear God. We are not interested in hearing what he says. We have blind eyes. When we hear or when we see of the things of God, we don't find them beautiful. We're inclined to find things that God detests, things that are actually morally repugnant, things that are ugly in the sight of God, and not just in the sight of God, but actually ugly morally. We're inclined to find them attractive. And we have hearts that are hard, that don't fear God. We fear anything but God, which is why we need the work of the Holy Spirit to give us soft hearts, new hearts, new eyes to see what is delightful, what is actually delightful, new ears to hear God's voice and actually hear it. Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. doesn't mean they hear voices in their head. It means that when the word of God is proclaimed, they hear it as the voice of their good shepherd. And so here, he talks about why we need these things. He talks about a, a heart that is hasty. Not only do you have blind eyes and deaf ears, you have a heart that's hasty. What does that mean? Hasty, like quick, quick judgment. It's, it's seen as decisive, as wise. So we're not looking for settled, unchanging wisdom, but we're looking for snap judgments. This is very true of us. We're often doing that. We're not looking for eternal truths. We're not looking for unchanging wisdom of the word of God. What we want is somebody to have a quick answer, a decisive answer, like, that's wise. That's, that's telling it like it is. But God's spirit instead gives us a desire for the righteousness of God more than hasty, decisive, uh, rash decisions like machismo leaders. We see this in the world and how they actually press that in on the church where they want straight-up answers about what's going to happen and how to get ahead of the political stuff and all that stuff, and, people, and, and men in the pulpit to speak decisively on things that are not clear. This hastiness of heart, the Spirit of God actually changes in his people. Rather than hasty, rash words, we want firm, settled things that have always been true and always will be true. On the flip side, you can see the other, other ditch the tongue of stammerers. Did you notice that? The tongue of stammerers will no longer be like that in verse 4. The tongue of stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. And so on, on one hand, you have people who our hearts really just love, really quick decisions, rash decisions, tell it like it is, that machismo thing. But on the other hand, the other problem with our heart is that we are sort of frozen, frozen by indecision. And this is because we have a fear of man replaced by fear of God, or maybe a fear of the future. But God's spirit changes that in us. So now we no longer hesitate to do the right thing because we fear God, not man. We don't, I don't care what man will do to me. I'm going to do the right thing, the thing that is clear in Scripture and always has been clear. I'm going to follow, come what may, because I fear God. I don't have to fear the future because the future is in God's hands and so you see that the, the Spirit of God gets rid of that quick, that hasty judgment and replaces it with the ability to not come to quick judgments, but when the truth is clear, to quickly obey the truth. 
because we fear God. This is something the Spirit of God does in the people of the Messiah. And so this, this is the kind of work that the Spirit does where a man would say, I will make righteous decisions because God will hold my future. Now that requires a new heart that loves God and God's delight more than money or life. And then what follows, I hope you can see this in verses 5 to 8, is sort of a poem or a song uh, compares what is honored in the kingdom of Christ compared to what is honored in the kingdom of the world. Not, not only what is just permitted, but the things that are honored. Because what is honored and celebrated is often what we desire because we too want to be honored. So let's look at this little poem and we'll see, we'll call this in his kingdom, honor will be honored rather than fools and scoundrels. In his kingdom, honor will be honored rather than fools and scoundrels. Let's see this in verses five to eight. The fool will no longer be called noble, nor the scoundrel be called or said to be honorable. For the fool speaks folly, his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words. But, uh, but even when the plea of the needy is right, but he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. And so we see in verse 6, it talks about the fool. Verse 7, the scoundrel. And verse 8, the noble. And the fool is somebody who is defined by what he lacks. He lacks sense. He lacks wisdom. He lacks a fear of God. And we see that in the kingdom of the world, the world honors men who are fools. The world honors men who are fools, who, who don't have sense, who live for their passions, no matter what the cost. They're not thinking about the future even the long term of their own life, and they're certainly not thinking about standing before God. We might see this as the quintessential teenager of the 20th century. Something happened in the media where this idea of, of a young man who cares, uh, who cares nothing about consequences, who lives just for the present, doesn't even think about the consequences of what he'll do that evening or the next day, let alone 20 years or 30 years from now. That is celebrated in our culture and it has been for some time. This is typical of the world where we think that that is the ideal. We kind of want to be that kind of a guy. We're jealous of a man who doesn't have to care about responsibilities. We honor him. So how many women have been inclined to, to, to such men because the world has honored them? And then they've paid the price of a man who is celebrated for being irresponsible and defiant. And likewise with young women, men inclined to such women who are treated basically as ornaments because society has said you need to honor people who are foolish and who don't care about responsibility, they don't care about righteousness. They, they hate the idea of responsibility, particularly of being a mom or a wife. Thinking all about a good time now, even though disaster may come in the future. We see this in our, in our rock star culture. We, we honor these people, or even social media, the, the men and, and women who say and do useless things all day, we just wish we could be them. They're the ones who have the highest social media following because we, we wish we could be as stupid as them and still be able to pay our bills. I was reading an article on, in, on uh, CBC uh, today talking about, or uh, this, earlier this week, talking about a man who contracted monkeypox. And the man they picked to talk about him, they honored this man because he was so proud of how he got it. He got it through promiscuous homosexual sex at a bathhouse, and they honored him for being such a man. And the whole article talked about how we should be, 
be ready and willing to make sure that this man could continue these things and men like him. We honor people who do not care about the consequences and we do not expect them to be wise. We celebrate unwisdom and we're just expected to make sure that everybody honors it. Now, the, the church also suffers from these things before we are hasty in judgment. This irresponsibility is sometimes pressed into the church where so long as a man is spiritual, a young man is spiritual, he, you know, he reads the Bible, he's interested in theology, it doesn't really care what he, his approach to work or responsibility. It doesn't care if the, you don't care if the man plans for the future or who's inclined to get ready to ever have, a, have a wife and, and family. And there's this baptized, it's baptized with spiritual language. Oh, you know, you can be irresponsible because the Lord will just make everything work. The Lord is very gracious to even his foolish children. But this is not the heart of the Spirit of God that he works in us. Think about Christ. Christ is the wise man. He is the righteous man. How good and wise he is thinking of the future. How he cares not just of the eternal future of his bride, the church, and of his children. He also cares about our daily bread. Wisdom is honored in the kingdom of God. Wisdom is honored in the kingdom of God. So we have the fool, but then we also have the scoundrel. We see this, uh, the scoundrel we see uh, in uh, verse seven. And so the scoundrel is not like the fool, at least not in the short term. The scoundrel is actually, he's a planner. He kind of understands how the world works. He might even be a man who saves up money, who's interested in, 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 his, in accomplishing things. He pays more, attentions to the law, more attention to the laws of nature, to general revelation. But he usually uses a lot of blind fools to accomplish his good. He doesn't care about the Lord, but he's at least smart in terms of this world. He's got some worldly smarts. He's planning for the future. This man is planning for his retirement, but he's willing to trample over the Lord's law and over people in order to accomplish it. He cares nothing about righteousness. So this man is a scoundrel. Isn't it true that we honor this man as well? Isn't it true that we look up to these men who just say it like it is and who trample over God's law, but look, you know what? The ends justify the means. We kind of wish we could be like these men who are ruthless in business and who are liars and who crush their, uh, their enemies and therefore they are rich or well thought of in the eyes of the world. We kind of honor these people as well. But that's not so true that we see this sort of in, in, in titans of business or in crafty politician. This is the air we breathe and we're told that it is honorable to be a fool or a scoundrel. And I wondered, I wondered if you notice in these verses how it starts with a sin against God and then inevitably it leads to sin against their fellow man. Did you see that? The fool speaks, verse 6, the fool speaks folly in his heart, is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, then to leave the craving of the hungry and satisfied, deprive the thirsty of drink. Same with the scoundrel. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. They're against the Lord. He plans wicked schemes against the Lord, then to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. You start by rejecting God's idea of wisdom in terms of uh, honoring God and answering to him, but inevitably, you end up destroying people. I want us to realize that we're not immune. We are not immune. 
We are not immune. We're not immune. The men in the world that even the men of the church and the women of the church look up to will tell us whether or not we are immune. The people we like listening to, the people who we just love it when they take a shot at their opponent, we say, oh, this is so good. It tells us we're not immune from that. But in the kingdom of God, in the reign of Christ, honor is honored. In verse 8, we see this. But the noble man plans noble things. It's very simple. It's just a very simple statement. What is honored in the kingdom? Honor is honored. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus is our wisdom. He is our picture of what is wise. He is what is honored. He's not rash. He's not driven by passions. He's not afraid to obey the Lord God, his Father. And unlike the scoundrel, he reigns for the good of those people under his influence and his reign. We live in a world where some things that are, some honorable things are still honored. But many dishonorable things are honored, aren't they? To be, permicu- uh, per- to be promiscuous is honored. To tell the difference between a man and a woman is dishonored. To protect the lives of babies and the disabled is dishonored. To forgive those who sin against you, even if it is painful, is seen as dishonorable and ugly and something that we should not insist on. To limit your entertainment to that which pleases God or to manage your family's schedule based on what would accomplish God's purposes rather than fulfilling your kids' every need and want or every want and desire. These things are seen as dishonorable, but the Lord honors what is honorable. The citizens of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in this kingdom, he gives the gift of honoring what is truly honorable. And what is that? What looks like Christ? What is right in his eyes? What is pleasing in his eyes? What does the Father celebrate about the Son? Those who honor those things will not be put to shame in his kingdom. Let's look at our next point, and that's this. His reign exposes counterfeit rest and peace. We'll see this, is, this in 9 to 14. Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In a little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women, for the grape harvest fails. The fruit harvest will, will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare. Tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses of the, in the exultant city, for the palace is forsaken. The populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. You may think at first glance that rest and peace and quiet are wicked. Contentment is wicked. Not so. Rest and peace and quiet are only wicked if they depend on unrighteousness or don't care about righteousness. See, the daughters of Jerusalem were complacent. They had a false sense of peace and rest and confidence They weren't caring about righteousness. They sort of just assumed that everything would be well with them just because it needs to. It's it's my birthright. I just should expect it. I deserve to live a uh, life of peace and rest. We see here how the Lord exposes counterfeit rest and peace. He did this in the short term by the fall of Jerusalem, and you can see how this is prophesied, isn't it? You will shortly fall. Everything that you rested in will certainly quickly be removed. The Lord also does this in our lives. He does this in the life of every person. 
particularly those who belong to him. He exposes false rest and peace. But then ultimately, the Lord will expose counterfeit rest and peace when he returns, when the Lord Jesus returns. He's not just going to do this on an individual basis, but he'll do it publicly. When he returns, there will no longer be anyone without righteousness who feels peace and rest and quiet. No one will have a false sense of security. No one will have a complacent sense of rest. Now, faith in Jesus is one of rest and quiet and peace. But it's not one that is seen as a right. It is one that depends on righteousness. One needs to be righteous in the sight of God in order to have peace with him, to be at rest, to be at peace. One needs to be able to stand before the throne of God and the judge and for him to declare them innocent or righteous in order to have peace. Anything else is counterfeit peace. Dear friends, how then can we dare have rest? How there... How then can we dare have any peace if we are not righteous? Everyone in this room is a sinner, has broken God's law, has been a scoundrel and a fool, has honored what is dishonorable, has dishonored what is honorable. How then do we dare feel rest and peace? What right do we have? Thankfully, that leads us to our fourth point. The crucified Lamb of God was alone worthy to send the Spirit and give true rest and peace. We see this in verses 15 to 18. Until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Thus far, God's word. A world of perfect peace is described here. Peace and quiet. The continual exposing of false peace and rest will continue until the Spirit is poured out. In verse 17, the effect of righteousness will be peace. But then who can stand? Not Hezekiah. Hezekiah had a wonderful reign of righteousness, but you know Hezekiah's reign ended in a bit of a disaster. He did not care about the results of his reign after his reign was over. He was complacent at the end of his reign, leading the people of God to realize they needed a greater son of David than Hezekiah. But that would not be true of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right to the very end, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, where he died for the sins of, not his own sin, but the sin of his people. Who then could send the Spirit of God? Verse 15, until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. Not Hezekiah. Who could send the Spirit of God? Brother George read for us, who can send the Spirit of God? John the Baptist tells us the one who could send the Spirit of God is the Lamb of God. And how could he send the Spirit of God? How could he give the gift of the Spirit? If we're all unrighteous, what, how dare we be the temples of God? Oh, he takes away the sin of the world. And as the Lamb of God, that means he was sacrificed for the sin of the world. All the sin of his people from every tribe, tongue, and, and, and nation. All their sin was taken off of them and put on the Lord Jesus Christ and he was crucified. And when he was crucified, he was damned. He, was, he bore the wrath of God for your sins. He was crushed under the weight of your sin and God's hatred 
of your sin. This is why he and he alone could give the Spirit. Why he could reign in righteousness. Why he could actually give peace to his people. Because he was perfectly righteous himself. And dear friends, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, if you have repented of your sin, repented of this foolishness of being an enemy of God or just ignoring God, and instead trust in him to reconcile you to God, where you're done with being an enemy, I want to be a son, I want to be a daughter of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. I want to be an obedient child. And you realize you can't do that. But the Lord Jesus Christ did that with his death and his resurrection. And dear friend, if that is true for you, then you will be treated by God according to Christ's righteousness. You are covered in his righteousness. Because he was covered in your sin every time that you were a fool or a scoundrel. All of that was placed on Christ. He was robed in that garbage. And he stood before God as judge in that moment and he was condemned for it. So that when you stand before God, you will be received by his righteousness. He reigns in righteousness because he is righteous and he gives his spirit because he's the righteous one. And he took your sin. It gives us rest and quiet and peace now. He gives his people his spirit to rest in his finished work. Now this is why it is a shame when the modern church buries people with lives that focus more on what Christ does in them rather than what Christ has done for them. Who lead people in songs that are like, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do, here's going to do, we're going to do it, 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 rather than songs that say, it was finished upon that cross. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to say, thus says the Lord. I believe that many of us have held on to that way of thinking that we, that is so prevalent in the evangelical church today. That do, 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 prove, prove, prove that you're worthy. This is true of the conservative and it's true of the liberal churches. And we've sort of taken that on and maybe just added gospel or reformed language. And it should not be so, brothers and sisters. So many times I'm saddened by conversations where it seems like this church, members of this church are trying to prove how they deserve a spot here. Trying to show their reformed or gospel credentials to other people. Here's the choices I've made and I've, here's why I've made them because I need you to know that I actually belong here. I'm not like those other people in those other churches. I really belong here. Oh, dear friends. Rest. Talk about why Christ earned you a place here. If you are trying to prove that you deserve a place in a gospel-centered church with sweet reformed theology centered on the work and the finished work of Christ. If you're not trying to prove that you deserve a place here, you don't have a place here. The only place here is one that was earned by Christ and Christ alone. He gives rest. Let us not transfer that nonsense into this place. He gives us rest. Now he also gives us a future rest. Today we Dine with the Lord in the presence of our enemies. And he rules over his church by his spirit. But there will be one day when there is no enemies around us, when the Lord destroys the enemies. Those are not covered by his blood. And he will usher us into a perfect world of rest. 
Did you notice here where he's essentially saying here that what we would call lush gardens now, one day we'll just call scrubland. Look at this incredible garden. Look how great it is. Do you realize in the new heavens and earth, what we'll call that? We'll call that scrubland. The whole earth will be filled with the glory of God and it'll be perfectly set to have us enjoy the presence of God and the earth will just be like bursting to give us everything we need for joy. You won't have to like tear it out of it and fight the earth. It'll be pushing it out, honoring the children of God the way that we don't deserve, but that the Lord Jesus Christ deserves. Dear friends, we can look forward to that day. We won't have to wait for surgery dates or appointments with doctors. We won't have to wait for the war in Ukraine to end. We won't have to wait to see if we can actually pay our bills this month. We won't have to worry about going into our workplace as a hostile environment for people who hate you because you honor what is honorable. Because the Lord honors that. And there will be a day when the only thing that is honored is what is honorable. And you will be there, not because you have done so, but because the Lord Jesus did it and it was counted to you there's kind of an epilogue at the end, verse 19 and 20. You see it kind of shifts, and there's these two choices, these two futures presented, 19 and 20. Let's read this. And it will hail when the forests fall down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Did you notice there's these two, not equal and opposite, but opposite futures and it will hail when the, horse, when the forests fall down and the city will be... It's like it, when, it, it's, when it rains, it pours. There's a future that it will be so bad, it'll be bad upon bad upon bad. It will be as bad as it can be. And so there really are only two choices. The future for those who thirst for righteousness and those who will be destroyed. What you call terrible now, you will wish for then. You will either be destroyed for your unrighteousness eternally. You will either be sent to hell as you deserve for your sin, for your unrighteousness, for your being a scoundrel or a fool, your wickedness, your rejection of righteousness. You will either be punished eternally in hell for that or you will be rewarded for the Lord Jesus' righteousness because he paid for yours on the cross and he rose from the dead. Those are the only two options. Don't be a fool to think that there's a third option, that if you do nothing, they'll just go nowhere. The do-nothing option is the one where if it rains, it pours, where hell is the reality. But choose today who you will serve. Will you turn to the Lord Jesus to be rescued by him? And know that once you do, it was him who gave you his spirit to be able to do that. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus, and this will be your future, a home where righteousness dwells. How foolish would it be if we're looking forward to a home of righteousness to honor, dis, to, to honor uh, unrighteousness now? In John chapter three, he says, those who have such a hope, they purify themselves now. In Colossians three, he says, put off all of these sins for because of, because of these things, and the account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. 
Your future hope, if it is heaven, the place of righteousness, should govern how you behave now. Taste it. Enjoy righteousness now. Enjoy honoring God. And when you sin, spit it out. Repent. Repent and believe and trust the Lord Jesus to not only forgive you, but cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Honor what is truly honorable. Delight in what is truly delightful. And dear friends, in that day, the the most honorable and delightful things that we will delight in is the Lord. He will be our greatest joy and delight. He will be the main course. All of those other things, streams and food and and health and peace and all those things will, will certainly be on the table, but they will be the garnish. He himself is what we will enjoy. He gives us a foretaste of that in the Lord's Supper which we will now respond to his word by celebrating the Lord's Supper, where we feast at the table of the Lord with a place that we don't deserve. The place at the table, the family of God, the feast of God, is one that was paid for us by the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's actually, the Lord's Supper is actually God's promise of the gospel made visible. His promise that for all who believe in him, that the body of Christ hung instead of you and his blood was shed to pay for your sins. This is a promise for all who believe. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you respond to this promise of God by eating, by drinking. We'll ask that the children hold back. We're looking forward to the day that you celebrate the Lord's Supper with us after the day that you publicly confess your faith in Christ and are baptized. But for all those, for all those who have publicly confessed their faith, I encourage you, we insist on it, that you would take the cup and the bread in response, not to make a promise publicly to God, but to publicly say you believe the promise he's made to you. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward and I ask, and we'll pray together as they do that. Father in heaven, we rejoice in a home, a hope of righteousness, but we also rejoice that our own righteousness is not what will get us there, but the righteousness of Christ, that he died for our sins and he was raised from the dead for our justification. So Lord, I pray that as this public, visible promise is made by you to your people, I pray that you would use it to work faith and repentance in each one of your people. But I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.